Our speaker tonight is celebrated poet, critic, editor, translator, and teacher, Rosanna Warren. Born in Fairfield, Connecticut, Ms. Warren received a bachelor's degree from Yale University and a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University. She's currently the Hannah Holborn Gray Distinguished Service Professor in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. Ms. Warren is known for her dense verse, rich imagery, and often intensely personal subject matter. She's authored five poetry collections, including her most recent books, Departure and Ghost in a Red Hat. Ms. Warren is the recipient of several Pushcart Prizes, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award of Merit in Poetry, the Metcalf Award for Excellence in Teaching at Boston University, and the Sarah Teasdale Award in Poetry, among others. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Society, and has served as Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. Tonight, Ms. Warren will read poems from her most recent collection, Ghost in a Red Hat, and will read from her forthcoming chap book, Graffiti. Please join me in welcoming Rosanna Warren to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you all for being here, and I thank the Athenaeum for inviting me. What a noble place to read. I'm in awe at this room and this collection um, and the company we keep here. <laughs> I'm going to read just a few poems from Ghost in a Red Hat and mostly read from this new manuscript, which I think is going to be a chapbook called Graffiti and eventually, I hope, a book book. We'll see what it's called. <laughs> but in Ghost in a Red Hat, six of the poems are elegies for my dear friend, the, the poet and nonfiction writer Deborah Tall, who died of breast cancer about five years ago. So I'll read two poems for Deborah. Not to go over time. Notes. Your voice, already disembodied, sputtered in radio waves across half a continent, from your hospital room to my patchouli and doily-ridden, creaky floor-boarded B and B. I recorded our talk in ink so emphatically black it's blodged through to the other side of each notebook page, on which I nevertheless wrote, so that now your words arrive triply broken, inaudible, illegible, and interrupted by my memory of magnolia wallpaper and the looming armoire with the full-length mirror at which I gazed almost unseeing while you uttered staticky syllables that did not entirely add up to my body dying around me and palliative care, and which I would not, could not entirely hear. You wanted to finish your poems. I wanted us never to finish a conversation so imperfectly understood. And this is also for her. 
A cosmos spelled with a K as in, uh, in Walt Whitman. A cosmos. You lay in your last sleep, not sleep, head tilted stiffly to the right on the pillow at a sharper angle than when you bent over poems year after year and we plucked at each other's lines, as if now you considered some even starker question. Your IV tubes were gone. Your arms were bruised. A blue cloth cap enfolded your pale, bald head. It was too late to give you the lavender shawl I'd imagined more for my sake than for yours. Your mouth was suddenly tender, the mouth of a girl. You had come very far to come here. Never one not to look at things squarely. Now you looked inward. Who knows what you saw? And when weeks later we gathered again at the house to say those formal farewells, I went up to your study looking for leaves of grass and found, instead, your orderly desk, unused, your manuscripts neatly stacked, the framed photographs of your girls, and, like a private message from Whitman, who saw things whole, the small, dried body of a mouse, a cosmos, he too, he too, luckier. And some of the poems in this book I consider more um, overtly public in some way, though it's hard to distinguish or pull apart the private from the public. In this poem, Fire, the name Mutanavi Street is the name of the street in Baghdad, famous for booksellers. Fire. It would take a voodoo skull, one eye darkened, one candle lit, to see into these pictures. Who set that fire? Who piled that cliff of smoke? The newsprint is jaundiced, ripped at the edge. I set that fire. I piled that bombastic mountaining smoke. I mound it up every night. And I don't haul anyone out. The bodies are stiff, like little T-squares. It's not clear what geometry problem they solve. The ditch is a rampart. The live ones, turbaned, stand on the upper rim. Bombed trucks burn rectangularly. The books on Mutanabi Street make a chunky oatmeal mush. This world, the same for all, was shaped by no god or man, but always was and will be an everlasting fire, said Heraclitus. And the child in the charred room reaches out to touch the wall. The furniture is burned, his father's shot. The mirror reflects only the camera's flash. 
We found fire in our souls before we stole it from heaven. Now, we are the lords of light, and the dark room is ours. Um, And here are uh, some of the poems from Graffiti. And I consider this book partly a work of mourning for my country. So I hope you'll pick that hint up in the poem I'm about to read. Northeast Corridor. Catechist of gnarled oak trees, marshes, small suburban marinas, cinders and gutted mattresses, I let myself be slung along tracks from one city toward another. Stain of rose water where the sound remembers the sun. Where reeds write hieroglyphs in a silver-plated bog. A dilapidated barge half-sunk hunches from slime. Chain-link fences, dim factories, tumble of trash down a bank. My country, my countryside hurls itself away as twilight catches in each broken window. The yachts are shrink-wrapped for their winter coma. I'm riding away from my love. It is the secret of holding the sword with nothing in your hands, the demon sermon instructs. Am I holding a sword? My hands are open. I touch the window of this speeding train. My heart was torn open, and now it's all window. Branches have ripped the cirrus gauze, and evening floods through the Dalmatian-spotted woods. Snow patches and leaf patches spin by. Wooden stakes poke like bad teeth from mud flats. The silken, pearl-gray kimono of sky is draped over Long Island Sound. The horizon's illegible. We have left shingled houses, sidewalks, picket fences behind in a blur, back where we made the childhood promises. We signed our names, but wrote in invisible ink. And this poem is very different world, um, back to the 16th century. Um, this is my love letter to the, I think, great English poet Mary Sidney, who was the sister of Sir Philip Sidney. And Mary Sidney is her, her incredibly inventive uh, poetic gift expressed itself mainly in translation, um, including the translation of Petrarch's The Triumph of Death, which is, that gives the title to this poem, and her translations of the Psalms um, that she did, uh, finished Sir Philip's. A collection of the Psalms. It's the, the, the Sydney Psalms to me are a great monument of English poetry, and I wish more people read them. It is to me one of the most radical collections of English poetry of any century. The extraordinary um, inventiveness of the verse forms. It, it's a it's a great book. The Triumph of Death to Mary Sydney. In your lace ruff, you resemble a giant snowflake or spider web pearled with dew. What poets you catch in your symmetries at your long table at Wilton? What wits Spencer, Fulk, 
Greville, Drayton, pitch into the roasted piglets, stewed apples, carp. If you roused God up, he knocked you back on your heels, lady. Oh, God, why hast thou thus repulsed and scattered us? Through the high windows at Wilton seethe rumors of battle, Philip's pussing thigh, death in the lowlands. Mother wrong, daughter strife, stalk the cities. Still, you keep house with grammar. You salt the psalms for long preserving. As smoke in wind, as wax at fire doth waste, the unjust dissolves. Your stanzas stay, still sting the tongue. Dawn finds you kneeling on stone, calling again the bleak God you believe will answer you. You mix medicines, you write in invisible ink. But time trumps fame, which undoes death, which masters chastity and love, which leaves eternity, your master wrote, master of all. And like your lace, your lines shine not pale, but whitely and more whitely pure than snow on windless hill that flaking falls, as one whom labor did to rest allure. Translate us to rough line by line into your crystalline, severe design. And um, I've been looking through old family boxes, sort of thing that one thinks about in a great building like this, where there are a lot of old family boxes. A cardboard carton. And from the box, from her inchworm script in blue ink on blue note paper, soared tall feathery pines on an island in Maine, the silver light stroking a carpet of pine needles where the elderly lady inspects a carnivorous pitcher plant, its fleshy, gulping tongue and groove with a fly stuck in the gullet. And from the box rose the history of Christianity, composed by an Episcopalian master of a college at Yale, through whose paragraphs the Crusaders march in a miraculous extension of good news, and the Reformation reforms a truth at last refined to an aureole in New Haven, in mildewy pages, exhaling dust in small, excitable puffs. And from the box breathed my great-grandfather's youthful poems, pining in San Francisco in 1880 for the Fairer Sierra, lamenting his heart's burning error in the throbbing currents of his dreams as rivers ran rust red from the mines and the leather binding cracks and flakes in this cardboard mausoleum onto my grandmother's sewing casket, button collection, spools of embroidery thread, and 15 different carved, inlaid, or velvet upholstered boxes, boxes, each secreting a relic, coral necklace, shoelace, thimble, French stamp, my shades. I offer you only 
my mistakes. A few grains of barley, a saucer of honey at the door of the tomb. Hospital chair. I carry a whistle in my pocket to guard against assault. At the end of the notebook under politics, only a blank, through which my mother walks almost blind, carrying ginger snaps, apples, and stuffed bears for my children. Her smile, girlish, vulnerable, the rage sublimed away. The pain as well from when I hurried her in the metro and she fell and gashed her leg to the bone, or when her sister died and she howled like a coyote with its paw in a trap, soul-shattering, inhuman. Whose rage? My own, I think, though it was she who cursed the English girl as she kneeled and wept, scrubbing the tub. She who excommunicated guests from the dinner table. She, the child huddling with her sister under a snowdrift, caught by a blizzard on their way home from the country school. The child abandoned in a French convent where she ate lard and nearly died of whooping cough. And months after her death, she appeared to me in a dream, no longer wheezing with emphysema, no longer blind, striding in her silk turquoise dress across a distant lawn, a lawn that kept drifting backward to tell me that night at the hospital as I half slept in a cramped chair by my young child's bed that Catherine would not die. I guess my work is full of ghosts. (laughs) When we went looking for that eclipse of the moon in mid-Manhattan, we turned, dizzied by silhouettes of towers, and thought the moon was swallowed by hulking walls. And only when we headed home did she appear, rusted, a trace of menstrual red, half erased in her own ghostly blood. Like the scraps of poems tacked the screen porch wall of the summer cottage. After a winter of snow, wind, and rain lash, they delivered themselves shyly, ink muted, letters drained of sense. In phantom script, still Heldelin whispered, God is near but hard to grasp. But where danger rises, grows what saves. But what did we know of saving? Um, This poem, uh, Tashlik, is the name of the the Jewish ceremony in the second day of Rosh Hashanah, um, when you go to running water and cast bits of bread that if you're lucky, hold some of your sins and takes them away. And you'll hear echoes of Psalms 33 and 130. 
Tashlich. Thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We needed a running stream, but we had our sins. We carried our sins, but we needed bread. We found bread. We carried bread in small, stale lumps to the river, the river running as it ought with water slapped in the face again and again by wind. Glister from high-rises began to wink like foil in the punished waves. Do high-rise sins shine brighter? What were your sins? You wouldn't tell, nor would I ask. The piles from ruined piers poked at the not-quite-indigo dusk while cars thrummed along the elevated west-side monotone. And planes whined higher, carrying higher sins. And how was it, how did it come to be that I crushed someone's heart? It wasn't like tossing bread in a stream. Then how could it be absolved by casting bread? That heart wasn't stale. It wasn't a lump. No, more like a wounded pigeon, as if I'd stamped on its chest with my heel as it flailed. And now the chorus of excuses rises in plain song. You toss your bread. The railing is cold at my chest. Your bread shivers and bobs in the waves. I clutch my bread. And what do they mean by sin? I clutch my question. Night is hustling down over New Jersey, over the restless flow, the contradiction between a river's thrust to the sea and the tides upstream beseeching, roughed by wind. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. So I raise my hand in the dark. I unclench my fingers. I let one more sorrow, one more question fall into the sudden, the sodden, and anonymous night. Let's see. Here's another river poem. As if the massive grimy river shouldered its way toward the harbor. I stood under the ruckus of sky. The wind plucked awnings, plastic bags, newspapers, and sent the news twirling over corduroy waters. I'd meant to see art, but the plan miscarried. A guitarist stationed in a doorway bent his head to rasp his ballad into the wind's sore throat. Rainlight glossed the guitar strings and played its own tune. This city, such a storm of wants. You have a right to your actions, but never to your actions' fruits, said Krishna in a book I read with all the etc. about desire and emptiness. What did I want? And why did I want it so hard? Not emptiness, but a self like rain driven aslant the fence, the hacked at sycamore. That morning laid out on a marble slab at the store, the exposed red knob of a fish's heart 
kept its pulse in the butchered half-creature. No gills, no head, no fins, no guts, no tail, just the flat half-body and spine, and the heart blurping and shuddering in its own obstinate rhythm, as if, it seemed to say, as if, you idiot, you ever could be free. Let's see. I'm trying to change the tone a little here. (laughs) Um, I spend summers mostly in France, which is, it's no secret, France these days is a suffering country, and um, been spending them in the southern town of Montpellier. Not that it really matters for this poem, um, but uh, the, there's a whole new, recent new tribe of homeless people in France, uh, not the gypsies and not the clochards, but um, dressed up in battle fatigues and with dreadlocks and uh, the sociological jargon for them is SDF, sans domicile fixe, without fixed abode. Sans domicile fixe. Clouds like boulders. Boulders like petrified clouds that rolled down and stalled in the meadow. That was yesterday. Now we're in the centripetal apartment with Peonies aging in two vases, pink and cream petals frizzling into crepe. Mirrors multiply the years. I see you seeing me in the gilt-framed oval by the desk. I see us both in the mirror reflected in the closet door glass. My eye corners crease. Flecks of dark chocolate streak the inner spines of all the books. Words are drugs. Love is a drug. While Europe contracts into dark burgundy upholstery and cushions, deep in the French-English dictionary, three asterisks mark extreme vulgarity. How long can we stay here? Outside, the new homeless twist dreadlocks and pace their mastiffs. Tattoos bulge on their forearms. Paper wrappers and crushed cans clot the gutter. Sun leaps off the roof tiles. A brisk sea wind. In the mountains, those small purple flowers with pods and curling tendrils, now you tell me, were vetch. I love that word. <laughs> um, here's another Montpellier poem. Not that it really matters that it's Montpellier. It's in, it could seen it. You'll see in any um, industrialized city with 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 boring, boxy housing blocks, where we try to be human. July. Under the cliff walls of apartment blocks, on a narrow patch of grass as tough and discolored as old carpet, they have parked their motorbikes and distributed themselves, a tribe 
a colony. Girls and boys, some lounging on the sward, some on cement paving in a strip of shade, some on two facing wrought iron benches planted in concrete. Out of range of grown-ups, they play cards, they scuffle. A girl places her head on a boy's lap to practice kissing. They smoke, they pass lit cigarettes back and forth. A smaller boy pops a soccer ball against the wall with slow, heat-drugged, sidewise kicks. Hours pass. Cigarettes burn down. The ball thuds and shadows lengthen across concrete from four cypresses and six anorexic ginkgos. Day is endless. Summer is endless. Their throats sweetly sear. They drink Coke and toss the plastic bottles on the grass. This place, for now, is theirs. They can throw what they want. Their lungs are their own to burn. Their limbs loll in the loosened harmony of dancers at rest. They can pick themselves up when they want. And here's the title poem, Graffiti. I'm happy. I found the first line of this poem scrawled on a wall in Queens. It's better than my writing. So I just took it. That's what writing is. <laughs> Graffiti. Kitty goes commando and the Goldman rats fooey. That blue scaffolding holds up the sky. Who did we think we were padlocking in or out? Give me that huge, looping black script no one can read, a secret glyph. And just where someone has smashed the window, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, and a dented aluminum frame. He bent down, we know, and wrote something illegible on the ground. A toothy black and white dinosaur gapes. I like the crack in this wall of monsters where skylines topple and ogres twiddle train tracks in their claws like pipe cleaners. Down the long, semi-abandoned street in Queens, calligraphy gallops toward a shop displaying, like guitar strings, seven different iron rods for gates. Hole in the wall. Rose sound hole, ribbed sounding board, always from fissures and gaps, melody strains as trains thunder clank across the girdered overpass, a siren keens, and a solitary man ambles past amputated acacias, fisting out with leaves. This poem also has a uh, sort of musical motif. Um, the, the young in this room may not know who Marianne Faithful was, a pop singer well known for her sweet honey little girl voice when she was the paramour of Mick Jagger um, and then had a period of wrecking herself with drugs and alcohol and and then came back, and then that's when I think she became a great singer with a ruined voice. Um, 
It has an epigraph from Marianne Faithful. Away. The whole trick of this thing is to get out of your own light. Marianne Faithful. She said she sang very close to the mic to change the space. And I changed the space by striding down the boulevard Raspail at dusk in tight jeans until an Algerian engineer plucked the pen from my back pocket. As if you're inside my head and you're hearing the song from in there. He came from the desert. I came from green suburbs. We understood nothing of one another over glasses of metallic red wine. I was playing girl. He played man. Several plots were afoot, all misfiring. One had to do with my skimpy black shirt and light hair, his broad shoulders and hunger after months on an oil rig. Another was untranslatable. Apollinaire burned his fingers on June's smoldering lyre, but I had lost my pen. The engineer read only construction manuals. His room was dim and narrow, and no, the story didn't slide that way, though there are many ways to throw oneself away. One singer did it by living by a broken wall until she shredded her voice, but still she offered each song, she said, like an Appalachian artifact, like trash along the riverbank, chafing at the key, plastic bottles, a torn shirt, fractured dolls, through which the current chortles an intimate tune. Um, coming to the end here, so I don't hold you from your other pleasures. <laughs> um, some of, I think this book is going to have um, a group of poems about uh, uh, remarkable women, some of them remarkably awful women. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that Mary Sidney will be one and Marianne Faithful will be one. And here's Coco Chanel, who is truly a monster. <laughs> I'm sort of thinking of calling it the section of the book, A Dream of Fair Women, but we'll see. Anyway, here's Chanel, uh, and she has an epigraph. Chanel. A garment should be logical, Coco Chanel. Yes, I made the perfume. Yes, I am an orphan. Light my cigarette. Just so. The perfect profile intaglioed in air. Now let the hems down. Now we slash the collar. And when a man enters, always make him pay. Always. A stray prince around before the casino closes. This century tilts. I'm good at sphinxing. Elegance excludes. I exclude milk, waste, tears, uterus. Do I remember the lard colored orphanage halls? No, I refuse. Place a Coromandel screen in front of the car wreck and your world war, my demi-monde, 
We live in an age with no interiors, and his blood scrawled the pavement by the crumpled car. Embellishment gives way to line and ease of motion, a Bugatti flair, wealth assuming the proportion of catastrophe. And if the other was a German officer, I'm on my knees with a corona of pins bristling from my lips. It's not adoration, it's revenge. She was the richest woman in France in her later years. Okay, concluding now with just a couple little ones. Augusting, old news, leaf parchment crackles underfoot, pine needles, acorns, lichen, the waterfall only a patter sliming the cliff, the slope rumples down through mountain laurel and pitches below to ramparts of slate, shattered quarries, a moss-streaked bluff, we tread on silver flakes and shadows, downward, ever downward to the meadow where the ghost lily, late summer wraith, gapes, ash pink, with news of the underworld dusted on its tongue. And here are the last two. <clears throat> That landscape uh, with the shattered quarries and the, the uh, slate is the Catskills, but the totally different geology of Vermont is where I grew up, and this is a Vermont poem. Granite, not slate. The line. It's hard to see them through the lacing of forest shadows, the old crimson blazes on tree trunks marking the line. Sometimes the tree has fallen. Sometimes the paint has worn away and could be confused for lichen. I clamber down banks, trample underbrush, paws squinting between boughs, seeking the next mark. The pines have scaly, lacerated bark. Yellow birches ring crabbed hands and shudder. I played here as a child. Now I stumble from boulder to moss hollow. Who was that girl in raggedy summer jeans and smudged t-shirt scrambling up granite ledges? I think I see her slip like a coyote into older dark. She had unevenly cropped hair, grime in her fingernails. She crouched on a rock midstream and peered for trout, umber quaver in the bronze-flecked flow, and once in shadow kissed another girl on the mouth, both of them wanting to know how a boy's kiss would taste. It tasted of fear, moist, tremulous, hovering on a brink of territory imagined but unmarked, whose wind came muttering through branches, smelling of balsam and leaf mold, of creatures loosened back 
into the ground. And I'll conclude with this poem, Cotillion Photo. I should say, I didn't, as they said then, come out. <laughs> didn't have a cotillion. So this poem is inspired by some photographs I saw. Cotillion Photo. These young women will last forever, posed like greyhounds, trapped in the silver crust of the frame. You can't tell one from another, the breed is so pure. They will never run, each one aloft on a frozen wave of white cotillion lace, to resemble marriage, to resemble fate. I remember July's sun pouring down in a prickly meadow and a garter snake's skin laid out like fairy lingerie on a stone wall. This was Connecticut. There would be a stone wall. Crickets were scraping marrow from the day. I was young. I'd been alone for weeks. I painted the meadow morning and afternoon, trying to capture the crackling sound with my brush. I was reading Oedipus Rex. I understood neither the snakeskin nor the play. Your life is one long night, said Oedipus to the prophet. Oedipus, who saw nothing. Oak trees rustled in drought. In saffron grass, small creatures skittered. There came a day when I said to myself, I should prefer to sleep. Small planets tasted dry and bitter on my tongue. And two days later, I woke, alone in the creaking barn at dusk, not knowing what day, what month, what year, but feeling the hall of earth rolling on its way. It is not your fate that I should be your ruin, the prophet said. I moved my arms, my legs. I unclenched my hands and stood up dizzy from the cot. What was to come would come in its own good time outside the frame the moon was rising above the hill. A shy wind gathered force, and trees in their black silhouettes linked arms. Thank you. <laughs>